You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. All right, crew, coming to you from the Comancheria today. Let's talk about uh, a little bit of evolution to punching, how punching has changed uh, from cutters to clubbers is what we have now. All right, let's start out. I want you to picture two pugilists stripped to the waist in a makeshift ring of crowding spectators. They've arrived to enjoy a bit of the fancy. Once the decision of who gets the glare, that is resting in a second's knee facing the sun, they toe the scratch and they start throwing hands. All right, now I want you to conch the image of the hands being thrown. If you're like most and you think of the old days of this bare knuckle stuff in the early days, you've seen the woodcuts and such, you have visions of semi-straightened arms held in extended guards and sweeping clubbing blows. I mean, that is the common narrative, but... Uh, first, let's take a little trip into the world of behavioral economics and talk a little road biking, play a little football, ponder an observation from a pioneer of skydiving, and then we'll finally bring it back to the title topic that we're discussing right now. That, of course, is uh, the evolution of punching. All right. In 1975, economist Sam Peltzman of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business published an intriguing article with the very, in the very sexy publication called the Journal of Political Economy. Okay, now the title of that article was The Effects of Automobile Safety Regulation. All right. Now, in summary, Mr. Peltzman asserted that any advances in automobile safety were not necessarily being reflected in automobile deaths per mile or injury rates. In other words, people still, still seem to be dying at a steady rate despite the newfangled safety gear. Now, he offers why the widely touted safety features from Detroit were not being reflected to a greater degree in safer outcomes. He refers to the lack of projected safety gains being due to a change in the behavior of the drivers of these better engineered cars. The driver, knowing they have a safer vehicle, makes riskier decisions at the margins, assuming the engineered safety features are, in effect, safer than they were designed to be. Now, this behavior is known as risk compensation, or to some endeavors to Mr. Peltzman, it's the Peltzman effect. And to be clear, cars were and are increasingly engineered for greater safety, but the drivers behaved no better, and in many instances, worse, negating the engineered intentions uh, uh, to some degree. So again, our, all of our products get better, our tech gets better, but we really don't get any better. We have to do so by habit. It seems that humans reason thusly, oh, this is a safe car, I can drive it a bit more recklessly than the old pre-safety standard clunker, uh, thus setting off this treadmill cascade of ever-poor decisions. Now, some engineering wags have offered that the wisest safety device they could offer to really drive down automobile fatalities would be to place a steel dagger on the steering column pointing at the driver's heart. The driver then, knowing the inherent risk of heart puncture, would adjust the behavior accordingly. Now, sports psychologists have noted the Peltzman slash risk compensation effect across the board. Bike helmets do indeed protect the noggins of riders, but there is little decrease in injuries or injury severity because the riders ramp their performances up to the new assumed margins of safety. In other words, the bikers attempt things they may not have if the helmet were not in play. The rapid increase in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which CTE, in football is linked by many to the better evolved helmet and neck stabilization gear. This gear for improved safety has led to gamifying the gear or platonization, which is, uh, this is, uh, alters the tactics that increase the incidences of CTE, the very pernicious malady the gear sought to defeat. It is an understanding risk compensation that some forward-thinking coaches advocate some days for helmetless play or old-school leather helmet uh, uh, days to allow the players to adjust their behaviors for their own health. Now, Bill Booth 
He was a pioneer of skydiving, and he has his own name for this trend to reckless behavior that is now enshrined as Booth's Rule Number Two. Quote, the safer skydiving gear becomes, the more chances skydivers will take in order to keep the fatality rate constant. Unquote. All right. So you get that. The gear gets better. We get dumber. We try riskier things. Now, let's bring us back to the scenario we opened with, our pugilist uh, towing the scratch. Contemporary accounts of the early days of boxing and more recent deep dives by fistic historians, I mean, Elliot Gorn being among them, noted that the transition from bare knuckle to gloves saw that gloves, this is a quote, gloves protected fighters' hands more than their heads. Protected their hands more than their heads. I just repeated that back to the quote. They added weight to each punch and allowed men to throw innumerable blows to such hard but vulnerable spots as the temples and jaws." Unquote. So, prior to the glove, the bare fist era is less the unschooled, harsh-swinging melee that many assume. Precise straight punches held sway more often than not, and a staggering array of cutting punches were in the arsenal. Punches that were intended to cut, give the claret, which is bring blood, but save the hands. It is with the advent of the glove that heretofore now finger-breaking roundhouses, swings, hooks, and lateral attacks in the minefield of the elbows, protected rib, ribs starts to be, uh, gain some prominence. For many, this is the opposite of the mental picture of the early unschooled ones. An addition of safety gear, that's in scare quotes, safety gear, was not the only adjustment that affected how the fistic game was played. Now, there's also temporal adjustments, or time adjustments, or also prey to Peltzman effect. In the case of boxing, the adjustment to a 10-second allotment for a KO, as opposed to 30 seconds of recovery, altered tactics in another direction. It is far easier to drop an opponent for 10 seconds than for an entire half a minute. To drop a game opponent for half a minute, one must ought to be prepared for marathon bouts, and that was a common occurrence in the old days. Looking for wise fist-saving body punishment, precise uh, eye-closing, energy-draining, and spirit-flagging cutters and rippers to bring blood and other tools that put a game man down for three times the time needed for a 10 count. Whereas with the advent of 10 seconds qualifying for he's done for, spurs wilder and stronger clubbing to get the easier goal of 10 and done. Now, athletes adjust the gear and boundaries of their given domain. Humans do so in general that we do it all the time. Wise athletes play to the margins of the gear and the game, but if our eye is on the aspect of historical recreation or street survival where gear and boundaries will not come to our aid, training as it was is not merely assuming sporting transfers are the same as, the better part of wisdom. So in other words, if we want to garner what the old guys were doing, we need to train like they were, under the same conditions, not assume what we've kind of evolved to now with our safety gear is what was. It most assuredly was not. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. Mm-hmm.